This is Lando Malari on Space Station Babylon 5. The year is 2260. The internet travels through space much like sound does and Babylon 5 is just receiving Topcast for the very first time. We have learned we can use this to scare small children or to put mental patients into an almost comatose state. Thank you to Topcast for all you've done. Space Station Babylon 5, checking out. Celebrity voice impersonated. You're listening to Topcast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash Topcast. Tonight on Topcast, we're going to be talking to Michael Sands of the Sands Mechanical Museum in California. Michael does museum-quality electromechanical game and pinball restorations. And we're going to talk to him about his restoration process for electromechanical games and how he got started in the business. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. So let's give Michael Sands a call right now and talk to him. Sands Mechanical Museum, this is Michael. Michael, it's Clay. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Good. How did you get involved with the coin-operated game, coin, you know, restorations? It started with, uh, I was doing some research with NASA, and I was simulating uh, airplanes landing on runways. And one of the displays that I was responsible for creating was sort of a radar view of planes flying around above the airport. There was a video game called Omega Race, which had sort of a same look and feel. And I found one and thought it'd be cool to have something in my home that was similar to the work that I was doing. And I bought it and played with it for a while. And, uh, one day my girlfriend and I were playing, getting ready to go out and killing some time. And I said, you know, don't you like this game? Isn't it cool? And she said, yeah, I, I grew up with pinballs. I'd rather have a pinball. So my idea was to, you know, get her a pinball machine for Christmas. I went out and found one, an old electromechanical, and bought it and then thought, this is pretty cool. And what, what was the name of the game? Uh, drop a cart. Oh, okay, cool, Gottlieb. Yep, and uh, then I proceeded to find an operator that was going out of business, and I bought three more. Um, ended up marrying the girl, and uh, she's now helping me with all the restoration work. But restorations ran in your family, too, right? Yeah, my mother, um, after the kids had all flown the coop, decided, even before that, uh, when... She was young. She wanted to be a watch repair person, but her father said, you know, you'll never be able to make any money at that. You know, you need to go out and get a real job. She eventually became a professor uh, at the university, was teaching German, and um, when the kids were gone, she decided to find something to occupy her time, and so she started with a watch and clock collection and then proceeded to, you know, learn how to work on them herself and uh, helped me along at, at the very beginning. Uh, a single mom raising a kid, uh, she taught me how to solder, she taught me how to do wiring, uh, she taught me how to do a lot of metal work and cleaning and stuff like that. Now, when did the whole Sands Museum come about? 
Um, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how I managed to do that. It's getting more exciting even as we speak. Um, I think what happened, I, the only game I remember as a kid was Shoot the Bear, Seabird. And I remember going to an arcade in Houston, Texas with my grandparents and seeing a row of these that were being operated. And I really want, I desperately wanted to play them, but my, my grandparents didn't like the idea of shooting a gun and stuff like that and didn't quite understand it, so I, I wasn't allowed to. And I advertised in some magazine, and Dennis Dodell found the game and called me up and said, you know, Michael, you want it? And I said, sure. Uh, he delivered it because that was in the days that he was driving around delivering pinball machines. And it just happened that he got me a beautiful version uh cosmetically in great condition, even mechanically in good condition. So I painstakingly restored it. I, I didn't understand it very well, but, you know, taking it apart and looking at how things moved and where the wear patterns were, and I finally got it to work, and I had a little bit of trouble with it electrically. I'm not an electrician. And, but I got it up and running, and then I wrote this three-part article for Game Room Magazine about the restoration. And... Suddenly, I was getting all these calls from people saying, you know, will you do mine? Will you fix mine? And I thought, oh, that'd be an interesting idea. But I've got this. I, I was working in high tech uh, here in Silicon Valley, and I didn't really have time to do work for other people, but I sort of kept it in the back of my mind. I was getting tired of doing software. Software is one of those things that you can't touch and feel. You know, it's sort of in your mind and in the computer's memory, but there's nothing much that you can get your hands dirty with. And eventually I got to a position where I, uh, the high-tech firm I was with didn't need me anymore, and I sort of sort of surplused myself and said, okay, I'll do a couple of these games. So I did a couple, and people started to ask me to do other stuff. They saw the quality of my work and said, well, do this other game for me. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. Now, you concentrate on electromechanical stuff, right? I mean, you just to give people an idea, Seaberg, Shoot the Bear came out just after World War II. It was a rail-like gun game where you had a gun that was basically a big flashlight, and then you had a, a separate stand um, that had a bear that kind of ran around some scenery, and when you shot him, he went up on his uh, hind legs and, and growled, and the growling noise was all handled by a Seaberg, basically a jukebox amplifier. Right. Right. In fact, some of the parts are shared. The uh, credit unit is the same as found in the jukeboxes as well. Um, but I, it, 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 uh, it intrigued me just because it, it, shooting a ray of light across the room had all sorts of uh, implications. In fact, the original company was formed to help train our troops during the war uh, to shoot. They, live ammunition was expensive, and so they thought there must be a technological way to teach everybody how to shoot and shoot accurately. Um, and train the troops, find out who the good shooters were and who they weren't, and then let them practice later on with live ammunition. So the shoot the bear was was exciting for me. It turned out later on that there was actually a uh, connection with my family that I didn't discover until much later. <clears throat> what do you mean? What kind of connection? Well, uh, um, my parents actually... Uh, during the World War, uh, Second World War, my uh, father was a physicist, 
and he was working in Los Alamos on the atomic bomb. And some of his responsibilities were to design electronic circuits that were needed, some of them to detect uh, the radiation. Uh, one of them was to instrument the, the bomb. The bomb was supposed to go off above ground before it hit the ground so that the destruction would be much wider. And he designed a set of uh, radio uh, controls that would signal how high the bomb went off. Um, and he, at the end of the war, they wanted to declassify a lot of that electronic circuitry. And so the uh, Atomic Commission had commissioned some books. One of the books was an electric, electricity book, and my father uh, co-authored it. So later on, um, progressed to, the, to today, you know, when I'm restoring these games, and I was having problems with a particular Shoot the Bear, and um, happened to mention it when I was visiting my father over dinner one night, and he said, well, why don't you bring down the circuitry, and, you know, I'll take a look at it with you. A couple days later, I brought it down, and he poured over the schematic, and he rewrote it in, in sort of his form, and he muttered to himself, and he did some equations, and he'd ask me some questions, and he kept on going. And he worked on it for about an hour and a half. And he got to the end, and, and he said, oh, you know, I, I apologize. You know, we didn't spend any time figuring out your problem. Why don't you, why don't you come on back another time, and we'll go over it. So a week later, I went back, and walked into the house, and he opened up this book, and he showed me a circuit that was printed in the book, and it was the 2050, which is a Cyrotron. It's a tube that acts sort of like a relay, a solid-state relay that we have today. And he, I looked at it, and I recognized it as part of the circuit that was in Shoot the Bear. Well, apparently, what had happened is the designers of the Shoot the Bear amplifier had read his book and had found the Cyrotron circuit and used it as the circuit to trigger the the shot count and the hit count for the for the amplifier, and so I thought it was a, a sort of a nice twist that something my father had documented and put into the public sector had found its way into a game, and that now I was restoring that game. Uh, he was very pleased too. He was very excited to see me working on these games and was asking all sorts of questions. So, I mean, this was kind of like a full. A full turnaround, was he, did you get it to the point where the game was working and you let him play it? He has never played one. He, he's old enough now so that he doesn't like to travel. He lives about uh, 45 minutes away over a, over a mountain pass or a hill pass. He's sort of on the coast in California and I'm on the inland part. Uh, he's never actually played one, but every once in a while I'll have a small game, you know, that I can put in the car and transport down to him. Just recently I filled it finished a little table talk, uh, tabletop shocker, a little electricity game, and uh, I took it down and showed it to him, and, and he, he was reticent to play it. He didn't look forward to the shock, but he's gotten a chance to share some of my games. I did take down the uh, Coon Hunt amplifier and, uh, and the oscilloscope, and we looked at some signals that were going around inside of that. So he's got a chance to get his hands dirty a little bit, but he's never, ever played one of the games. Just to let people know, uh, the Coon Hunt is another Seaberg rail gun um, style game that came out in the mid-50s where you had two coons or raccoons going up and down a tree, and when you would hit them, they would kind of back off the tree and squeal, and uh, it was really kind of a, you know updated view- version of Shoot the Bear. 
Yeah, I think that was one of the that was sort of the last Rayolite game that Seabird came out with, and I think they overextended themselves with that. I think the Coon Hunt gear train, I call it a transmission, is probably one of the most complicated uh, mechanical devices that uh, that ever made it into the uh, made it into the game. The, there are two sets of planetary gears which reverse rotation, you know, from one direction to the other. There's a spiral cut gear. There are two clutches, a bunch of ratchets. Um, it was, and for the amount of animation you get, uh, I think it was very, very complicated, and it was very difficult for the operators to keep running. I think they got frustrated with it, and I even heard a rumor that they destroyed bunches of these because they could never sell them. Hmm. So what now? What other type of uh, games have you re- now? Well, just to back up one more step. So you got so interested in this, and you stopped working for the software company in Silicon Valley. Now you have your own company called the Sands Museum, where you do um, you know restorations for other people, right? Right. Most of the work that I do, uh, I think I I try and focus on games that. Uh, nobody wants to work on anymore or nobody is familiar with. There are a bunch of games that are pretty rare uh, and uh, rather than create a process that lets me refurbish you know, hundreds of shoot the bears, I don't think there are that many out there that need, need my work and my tender loving care. Um, I sort of focus on games that, uh, that there are only ones or twos of or that nobody's willing to work on anymore. Many of the electrical technicians today that are practicing are familiar with solid-state electronics, but there are very few people who are familiar with tube electronics. And most of the ones that are familiar with tube electronics are probably retired by now. Um, so I I enjoy probably the, the range of games that the museum likes to restore is probably from 1930 up until about 1960. Anything newer than that, um, we don't get much joy out of, and I think there are other people who can probably do those better than I can anyway. Uh, so I like to, I like to, we sort of uh, pick and choose the restorations that we want to do. The other problem is is that once, you know, I have a sort of a core set of customers, and once they see the quality of my restoration work, they don't, you know, they want me to do other work. And so I have my hands full just trying to uh, complete the restorations that I've got in front of me uh, from my existing customers. Well, what type of stuff are you working on right now? Um, actually, what started me in all this, as I mentioned at the beginning, was the was the pinball, and I haven't done a pinball in ages. I just finished a Happy Go Lucky. Um, I got a chance to uh, do one to the to the top of my ability. The uh, it was it's a fairly rare game and so this one had experienced a little bit of wear not extensive cosmetically it was probably in medium condition so we uh we got to touch up the play field and uh clear coat it i've worked a long time trying to get rid of the ball track at the top uh so that it would uh roll down smoothly and then we touched up the cabin a little bit the work that we do we try and retain as much of the original patina as possible so we have a bunch of techniques that uh, allow us to uh, reduce the amount of glaring problems, you know, initials carved in the side or the wear around the flipper button uh, that's caused by people's rings or, or people bashing the button a lot. Um, we have some techniques 
using the airbrush, and my wife is extremely good at color matching. And then we protect areas of high wear, uh, like kick-out holes and stuff like that on the play field, so that they don't wear anymore. And um, in rare cases, we will have to do a cabinet repaint. Or uh, the kind of work that I don't like to do is cabinet repaints or rechroming or making a game look newer or better than it was when it left the factory. The ideal for us uh, is to make a game look as much as possible like it's been played and enjoyed for six months or something like that. It's been out on location and it has the patina of a game of its age. Well, let's let's take your Happy Go Lucky, which is a 1952, I believe, Gottlieb Wood Rail single player game, uh, and it is a, it is a rare game and a difficult game to find. Um, let's start with that. Let's go through that that whole kind of sequence of what you do, beginning with like you know the stepper units and the relays and and whatever. I mean, what is your approach here? Um, part of this is you know comes from a discussion with the the customer, the client that I'm doing the work for, um, they vary in their desire to have it uh, very original or or, uh, or not modified as much as possible. In this case, the uh, customer wanted it to play really well, wanted it to play like original. Well, one of the problems with happy-go-lucky is that the relays or the, the solenoids are in usually in brass or steel sleeves. And therefore, it's difficult to keep them moving smoothly or easily. One of the big improvements that came later was the was the nylon sleeve. And so, all the uh, all the uh, solenoids were swapped out for uh, nylon sleeve solenoid coil. The uh, you, you did every every single one of the coils you swapped out for the yeah because just to explain to people um, prior to uh, I think is somewhere around fifty seven fifty eight. All the coils in in the Gottlieb EMs, like you said, they have a brass sleeve. So instead of having a replaceable coil sleeve, the windings of the coil are actually wound directly around the the brass sleeve, and you cannot pull the brass sleeve out of the coil without ruining it. And you know, one you know thing to make a game play better would be to replace the sleeves with with new nylon versions. But the problem with the new nylon version coils is they have a completely different look to them. They're, the bobbins, again, are, are not fiber-based. They're, they're nylon-based. And you've got a nylon sleeve, and they, they just look different. I mean, was that acceptable to the customer? Uh, that that was That's a, a, a very good point. The, some of the customers want the look to be exactly the same when you look, raise the play field and look underneath. Some people could care less about what goes on underneath there. Um, in this case, you're absolutely right. You're making a trade-off between the original appearance and uh, uh, the uh, what I would say is not necessarily an improvement in the immediate play, but an improvement in the reliability. You can make the steel sleeves. You can clean them out, or brass sleeves. You can clean them out sufficiently. Um, I use a detergent of all things. It's got a little bit of abrasiveness to it and a bottle brush. And if you go back and forth through there, you can get the sleeve to be fairly smooth. And then all you need to do is make sure that the the solenoid itself, the core, is um, is smooth as well. But over time, the uh, metal of the uh, plunger starts galling the inside of the sleeve, and you need to clean it again. In this case, the customer is a, is a player and enjoys a uh, a nice smooth game, and so. 
for the interest of reliability, we went ahead and replaced them. On the other hand, you can, you can uh, I think the coils that I got from Steve Young, who everybody probably knows, one of the best suppliers, Pinball Resource, um, the wrappers on these coils were black, that was the same. So the only difference in appearance is the end, end caps of the coil, uh, in this case, were nylon rather than the original fiber. Right, yeah, I I um I buy stuff from Steve. I find that a trick you can do sometimes that's really cheating uh, is to uh, transplant the old coil wrapper from the original coil onto the new coil. <laughs> yep, yep, I've, I've resorted to that on occasion as well. Um, the other thing I do that a lot of people don't do is I will I will disassemble every mechanism completely and totally. Um, it's one thing to disassemble, for example, the flipper assembly and put in uh, put in new flipper links because oftentimes those have been worn a little bit round and there's a little bit of play in the flipper, which reduces its its uh, smooth stroke. Uh, it's something else that a lot of people don't do, which is completely remove every single piece from a, a score uh, unit. I take them completely apart and... Um, Wire brush the all the the contacts, and then I I do use some modern materials in order to improve the reliability. As as I mentioned before, uh, one of the things I do is I coat the um, the surface of the where the contacts are with a Teflon lubricant, uh, making sure that it will stay smooth and reduce the amount of wear on the brads as much as possible. Uh, you're talking about uh, like on a on a uh, any sort of rotating set of fingers against a, a bakelite stationary board with the brass rivets. You you coat that with a thin film of of Teflon gel lube. Exactly. The, the what? Not only do I want to preserve high wear spots uh, on the cosmetic portions, for example, around the flipper buttons or um, uh, where the ball hits or gets kicked out or something like that. But I also want to preserve where uh, where there's metal on metal. Uh, as you know, the, the lubricating internal parts inside the pinball machine is, is a bad thing to do because it attracts all the dirt and everything else, and then it becomes an abrasive paste and probably wears twice as fast as it would have if you just left it dry. But there are some modern things that don't attract the dirt um, that allow you to to reduce the amount of wear, and even though the a pinball machine will probably last yours or my lifetime, um, I'm looking forward to trying to get these things to last, you know, probably 10 or 15 lifetimes if they're maintained carefully. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that these machines are, um, you know, that we're just temporary, you know, gatekeepers for them, that they're going to be around a lot longer than we are. We, we'd certainly like them to be. There are, you know, there's the... Uh, as, as since my name is a, uh, the Sands Mechanical Museum, I get some interest from other museum curators who are asking my advice on how to do things. And there are some uh, people who have sort of a different approach than I do that's even more radical or dramatic. One fellow believes that, as you say, we're sort of custodians of these beautiful American art pieces, and uh, they shouldn't be played. Uh, any play will cause wear and will reduce their desirability in, you know, 100 years from now. And so his attitude is, let's preserve it. You know, he, he, it's called conservation. And we'll, you know, 
put it in a glass box and, and take all the moisture out of the air and people can file by and take a look at it. And I think that, I think that's probably not the kind of restoration or conservation I want to do. I want people to enjoy these. I want them to be played. I think that's half the enjoyment. Yeah, I, I, I agree too. I mean, my personal collection is, is more along the lines of your happy-go-lucky customer. I mean, you know, I don't replace all the coils unless, you know, the brass sleeves are actually been worn through or there's some problem where I, I just can't. You know, I find that coils are more than just, you know, a, a hunk of wire creating some form of resistance. They're also inductors. And as an inductor, uh, over time, um, you know, the Henry's change, and by sometimes just putting a new coil in, even though it's the exact same resistance as the coil it's replacing, it'll perform better because the old coil, uh, as an inductor, is it has broken down and just doesn't work as well. It's a delicate line that I walk. I always recommend to people when they're looking for a person to do work on their game, looking to do a restoration, that they find somebody uh who is who enjoys or who does the same kind of work that they're looking for um, you want to be able to meet the customer's expectations and different customers have different things that they want um, i had one fellow who who loved to have a whole series of games but all he would do is turn them on and look at them you know they would make pretty bright lights and he'd have them in his living room and they'd provide an ambient light source for him almost like visible art uh, other people want it to play exactly as it did uh, in the old days and don't want any any mechanics replaced at all. You know, they want the original coils in there. Um, they want the original brass or brass or steel sleeves in there, and they, you know, they want it to play with its little idiosyncrasies. Um, so you need to find somebody who's who is interested and willing to do the same kind of work that you want done on your machine. Um, there are people who want their games to be re-chromed and repainted, and I, I'm not a good guy for doing that. You need to find somebody else uh, who specializes in that kind of work. But another common thing is, is people get frustrated with the shoot the bear. When you're shooting a ray of light across and you're using old tube amplifiers, people will point the gun straight down at the ground and pull the trigger and find that the bear reacts and the hit is recorded. And they say, what's that all about? You know, I didn't shoot the bear, and yet the game still thinks, still thinks that I scored. And uh, I, in this modern day of computers and video games, we all expect perfection. Uh, we all expect it to behave exactly the same. Well, there's some, there's some legitimate reasons why the amplifier uh, recorded a hit when you were pointing down. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and uh, you could replace the... The gun could be replaced with a, a laser light inside of it instead of that uh, uh, filament bulb that's in the back of the barrel. And you could replace the electronics with a bunch of transistor electronics, and you could use radio frequency to, to synchronize everything up, and it would play much more accurately, much more perfectly. But in my mind, I, I, I remember kids going up to games like this, and a guy would swagger up to it with his girlfriend, and everybody else would be getting, you know, five or six hits, and he'd go up there and he'd get a perfect score. And the reason he got a perfect score is he would sit there and play the game often enough to learn its idiosyncrasies, and then he was king of the mountain. You know, he could go up there and show off and, and be the best. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny. 
<laughs> so what type of uh what has been your most challenging restoration that you've done for a, for a client? You know, it's funny. Sometimes the simplest game will be the the biggest challenge. Um, the one that comes to mind, an old style 1930s uh, pinball machine, and it was a baseball theme. And it had uh, little gates that would hold the ball, and they it would hold the ball at first, second, or third. And then a for example, if you got a single, it would hold the ball at first, and then if you got another single, the ball, the second runner would come up to first base, and it would raise the gate a little bit and release the runner that's already on first, and that guy would progress on to second, where he would be held. The problem is, uh, singles and doubles would be scored just fine. It would keep the runners in sequence, and they would run around the base correctly. The ones that where a problem is a home run. The home run would come running down, and he'd he'd release the runner at first, but then he'd sprint ahead, and he'd release the runner at second. Meanwhile, the poor little runner at first was still trying to catch up, and he'd be held at second because there was no ball to trigger the release there. Anyway, if people are curious, they can go to my website, and there's a in the mechanisms part, there's an animation that shows what the problem was. Well, I was frustrated because... I expected a home run to clear the bases. One of the pieces of research that I do is I go to the uh, patent database and I look up the game and I read the patent and I try and understand what the designers wanted for the game. And the designers had done this special little uh, ramp on the gate to make it so that it would last longer and hopefully the runners wouldn't get ahead of themselves. Well, I went ahead and implemented the patent on the gates rather than the way I found the game. It still wouldn't play right. Um, I went and visited my father, the physicist, you know, and said, look, we've got momentum from the balls that are triggering the release, you know, and how do we slow the ball down without stopping it, and how do we make it reliable? And we we noodled on this. I bet you we worked on this for over a month, and we still couldn't get it to work. And I finally had to give up, but that is probably the most frustrating thing of all is that when the game is poorly designed enough so that it never really did work right, but you can see the potential. I can imagine what the designers felt like when they couldn't quite get it to work right. If you look at uh, Rockola World Series, they solved the problem by having a rotating diamond. Um, And uh, this other game, we never did get it working right. So it's the simple things, you know, it's not the hard things. The, The simplest games can be the one that caused you the most problems. Right. We're going to take a break from our talk with Michael Sands at the Sands Mechanical Museum, and we'll be right back after this message. Hey, George, I just had to call and tell you about this really great magazine I got. It's called the Pin Game Journal, and it's the only magazine dedicated totally to pinball. It's got great articles and interviews with designers and everything. No, George, I won't loan you my copy. Who knows where you'll take it to? You're going to have to go to PinGameJournal.com and get your own subscription. But George, the guy says that each issue will get mailed whenever he feels like it. What's the deal with that? All right, George, I got to go. Got to call Elaine and tell her. I can't believe how good this magazine is. All right, we're back with Michael Sands of the Sands Mechanical Museum. We've also done some gambling games, too, right? What Like, uh, uh, you know, some paces, races type, type stuff. Tell me about that. The, uh, um... 
having having uh, my own collection started off as pinballs. Probably at one point I had uh, pretty close to forty, and we did a home remodel so that I had a game room and I could probably set up at least thirty of them. But when I started restoring games for other people, my games sort of didn't have much meaning for me anymore. I didn't have time to work on them. You know, I was working on client games and I was enjoying that. Um, in fact, it, it was kind of nice. People would send me a game. I get to work on it, restore it to perfect condition, play with it for a while, you know, get tired of it, and send it on its way, and people would actually pay me for the privilege. So a lot of my pinballs went left. Um, however, I do have, uh, for example, I have a Paces Races. I have an Evans Races. I have the first one and the last one. And I enjoy the complexity of those. To me, those were sort of, the, sort of the epitome of collecting. They're sort of like the Rock All the World series, 1937, sort of the best of the best. Um, and again, people are having difficulty finding anyone who understands those games and is willing to work on them. Um, the, the gambling games, to me, are probably the most fascinating. I mean, at this point, if I still wanted to buy a game, I would love to have a, a dice game, uh, uh, Buckley Bones or a Mills Dice or something like that. They're mechanically fascinating. Um, but I end up working on um, slot machines, um, some of the uh, pinball payouts that were attempts to get by the laws against slot machines. Uh, Mills Railroad was a good example, or Jennings Sportsman. These were pinballs that implied that there was skill in the game, but really they were just glorified gambling games that if you got a certain combination, they would pay out, uh, spit out nickels out the back or out of the bottom. Um, and then the uh, the Evans Races is another game that I really enjoyed working on. Well, let's talk about the Buckley Bones. I- I've never played one, only seen one in real life, and I wasn't allowed to touch it. How does that game work? <laughs> oh, you, you don't want to ruin the magic, you know. Any magician that tells you how the trick is done takes away all the fascination and the excitement. I mean, the way it works from a player's perspective is just like playing a game of craps. You you bet on a certain combination, and then you pull the handle, and the, the dice get rattled out there in front of you in that little window, and by golly, you know, if it, if it, uh, if you hit the right combination it pays out and if you miss then you crap out um so are you saying you're not going to tell us how how it really works <laughs> i don't know do you think i should clay I, I you know i know a good magician a magician doesn't you know give away his tricks but you're not really the magician here you know <laughs> yeah I, I, I what i'm doing is i'm relating to you sort of the the first time i got a chance to play one uh, San Diego John had a couple of them, and a friend of mine took me by his place to to look at some of the restorations and some of the games that he had. And uh, I looked at it, and, you know, I consider myself fairly astute mechanically, and he played it a couple of times, and I got to play it a couple of times, and I just I was just blown away because the machine knew exactly what the dice were showing. And I said, how in the world? Can it tell that, you know, it's showing a seven? You know, there's just no way. Well, okay. <laughs> For those of you that don't want to know the secret, 
Yeah, 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 tune off right now. But just to give people an idea, Buckley Bones was made in the mid '30s. It's um, you know, the, the side. It's like a tabletop game. Uh, it has a little arch dome that hold two dice in it and you're basically when you pull the lever the dice the dice uh you know it's like somebody rolled the dice and and the the game knows where they roll right and the and the, and buckley bones is similar in that there's a little window and you can see the dice through the window and you pull it they look very much like slot machines you pull the handle and uh the dice bounce around a little bit and come to land and the game knows what it rolled and uh gives you a payout or not, depending on whether you won or not. For those that don't want to know, put your fingers in your ears and hum for about 10 seconds. The, uh, the, the combinations of dice are actually hidden in little pockets in the game, and they get swept out into the window, uh, bounced around a little bit, but you'll notice that there's actually uh, the, the ground where the, the dice are landing, and then there's a little piece of glass just above the dice, and they can't actually roll. or ba- All they can do is bounce, but they can't turn from what they are originally. And because they were picked out of a pocket, the game knows exactly what set of dice it threw out there into the window, and it does it so quickly that you can't tell that it swept out the dice that were originally there and swept in a new set. So are you saying that there's actually like a, uh, like a, gl- like a glass slide, like a glass sandwich with a pair of dice, and there's, um, the, and there's multiple sets of these dice with a fixed set of numbers? Every combination of dice is set in a set of pockets, and so every combination is in the game, and it, like a slot machine that has uh, reels, it rolls and decides which, set, which pocket to pull the dice out of, and throws them out in there into the glass in front of you, and you think, oh, you know, the dice rolled to that combination. Whereas all it did is pick a pocket, and whatever combination was in that pocket is now shown in the glass in front of you, and all the other dice are hidden in pockets. All the other combinations are hidden in pockets on a set of, you know, on a reel or, or around the, the circumference of the square. Now, how come these dice games are so difficult to find today? I would think that would have been a really popular item back in the 30s. I, uh, it's interesting in that the more complex, uh, if you look at people in a, in a gambling establishment, a lot of people just want to be a drone. You know, put in your coin, pull the thing. Um, anything that's complicated or takes a little bit of thought or takes an, any amount of time, I think people get bored with. For example, the horse race games. They're pretty rare. Uh, they're complicated. They take a lot more time to run a combination and decide whether you get paid out or not. Um, so I think uh, probably the dice games probably had that same problem. Also, a lot of people enjoy the thrill of uh, letting, somebody, excuse me, letting somebody else roll the dice so that you can always go to the crap table and pretty much play the same thing. Yeah, but it's too cool. I'd love to find a, a Buckley Bones. I've been looking for years and have never been able to find one. Yeah, there. I've seen probably two or three go by a year, maybe four. Now, when you say the Sands Mechanical Museum, do you actually have a storefront where people can walk in and see your games? It's funny you should say that. You know, with all these new GPS systems and and all these points of interest that have been recorded inside the GPS. It's not unusual for us to get a call um, saying, you know, I'm in the neighborhood. We'd like to stop by the museum. What are your hours? How much is the admission? Um, or we'll even got, I've even had the occasional knock on the front door. No, we're actually, a, it's actually our home. Um, 
we're in the middle of a residential area. I probably describe the Sands Mechanical Museum as more of a virtual one. Games that have come in uh, that we've restored are documented, mechanisms are documented, and then we try and put them on the web. I'm not quite as prolific as you are, Clay, but I try and keep up, uh, try and keep adding new machines to our website. We do, uh, if somebody's interested in a restoration or if a celebrity wants to come by, uh, they're more than welcome. Um, just give us a call. Let us know, make sure make sure we're still here, and uh, we'll be glad to give you a tour. I may be prolific, but I'm not doing what you're doing. I mean, you're doing uh, you know what would be categorized as museum quality restorations. I'm probably doing um, you know. There's sometimes I do that, but a lot of times I am doing stuff. Uh, for instance, I don't repaint cabinets like you don't like to repaint them. I like to maintain their originality, even if they're worn, but if they're original, I, I prefer that style of game. Um, you know, there's some people, and this may be your camp where, like on a stepper unit, you take the whole unit apart and you either uh, are using an ultrasonic cleaner to clean the parts or you're bead blasting them and reassembling them. I tend to not go to quite to that level of depth. That I I have to admit that that is compulsive. Um, I I as I said, you need to find somebody who's going to do the kind of work that you're interested in doing. The problem with doing it to that level, not only is it expensive, you know, because it takes a, a lot more time to get something to do that clean, um, but it also um, I find that once I take something so completely apart. Um, I'll find out how it really works. You know, the, the actual uh, parts that rub against each other. The equivalent in a clock is when you look at some of the escapements, the part that goes tick-tock, um, the angles that the metal meets it and then pushes on something and gives it a, an additional impetus and then uh, catches it to keep it from going too fast. Um, those things have always fascinated me. You know, why Why does something work the way it does? And by disassembling it completely, I can look at the wear patterns. I actually wear a, a magnifying glass practically the whole time that I work or certainly when I'm reassembling something because I want to see it, you know, uh, at, very close at what's happening. And as a result, I'd like to think, I mean, this is this is stretching it a little bit, but I'd like to think that a lot of the stuff that I put back together again it's going to last for a really long time, especially in home use. Uh, since I've gotten off all the old cake uh, lubricant and dirt and grit and everything else, and I've replaced it with, you know, something fresh. That my hope is is that um, in the home use, it'll keep going for another ten, fifteen, maybe even twenty years. I, you know, I I I think that you know you certainly will meet that that 20-year objective. Um, I know in the games that I've done, I've got a number of games, uh, EMs, that I've done 10 years ago, and they still operate without issue today. And But the thing is, is that, like you said, it's in a home environment, so how much do they really get played? They don't get played a lot. You know, I mean, the, the, the mileage is fairly low. Right. You know, so I think that has, a you know, a lot to do opposed to it being operated at a you know at, a, at an establishment that's open every day with uh, money you know taking money from patrons. I uh, one of the things that I've had difficulty with is that um, 
we'll also get calls for from somebody wanting a game repaired. And uh, if I go in and I see a stepper or something like that that you know has had heavy use, is badly worn, and um, the question is, how do you get all the grit out of it? How do you get all the old uh, lubrication out of it? Or in a lot of cases, somebody mistakenly has gone in and soaked the mechanism in WD-40 in the hopes that it would get it working. Well, it, it does get it working for a short time, and then the stuff starts gumming up or getting dirty, and uh, the mechanism fails again. I haven't figured out a good way of how to clean that and get all the grit away so that it doesn't bind up again soon. I don't know how to do that without disassembling it. On the other hand, um, some people who, you know, a game typically in a home will probably have a lifetime realistically of maybe a year, year and a half, and then people will get bored with it. Unless they swap it out, it ends up sitting in the garage gathering dust and, you know, being a shelf for other stuff. Um, That kind of game, you can get up and running by wiping it clean and, um, it you don't need to go to the extens, extensive cleaning methods that I do in order to get something going and then satisfying that family. Then it gets passed on to the next family, and you need another person to come in there and clean it one more time and get it working for another year and a half. I, I think uh, my compromise is that, like on stepper units, I will you know take the moving bakelite plate off and, and clean that, the fingers and the stationary plate with the rivets, and then I'll also take out the rotating shaft that goes through the center of the stepper and clean that, and then the little clog levers, uh, remove those and, and clean those. But I'm not going to the extent where I take all those things off, I dump them all into an ultrasonic cleaner or a or bead blast them all, um, and, and, and then recode them with something so that they don't rust. I'm not going to, to that level, but yeah, anything that's moving obviously has to be taken apart, uh, and, and cleaned. But I've gotten to the point where I can, I can do a stepper unit pretty quickly unless it's actually physically rusted together. Obviously that's going to take some more time. I think your method is actually quite appropriate. I think your method is excellent in that it gets rid of all the dirt and the moving pieces and, um, uh, I don't see anything wrong with that at all. Um, it's sort of uh, like the difference between how people restore cars. Um, uh, mine almost becomes a garage queen, and I, I really hope that my my customers, my clients, don't you know let it sit in their game room and don't play it. I, my, I want my stuff to be played. Uh, but on the other hand, if you, I can imagine that somebody likes to open up one of my games and look at it. I think the coon hunt that I did couple of coon hunts that I did were absolutely gorgeous if you looked at the mechanism, but how many people are going to open up the door and show their their guests, you know, the visitors to their house, show them the inside, the mechanical parts? Some of them, I think, will, and they'll appreciate my kind of uh, restoration. Other people only care about how the game plays, and uh, I think they're, those people are appropriate as well. So those two clients require different levels of effort when cleaning a mechanism. So when you do cabinet repaints, when you're forced to go down that road, um, wh- what do you do for paint nowadays? You know, I was using lacquer, which you know, is what you know I imagine was being originally used, but largely that stuff's unavailable. Um, I, you know, I'm kind of getting getting into the situation where the only thing left to use is modern style paints. 
Yeah, we've reached the same conclusion. In fact, in the county that I live in, uh, you can't even get in, uh, a lot of the modern-style automotive paints anymore. We can only get the water-based stuff, uh, which makes it even more difficult to find the right colors and everything else. Um, working out of the house, I'm, I'm at a disadvantage because I don't have a lot of space. I don't have a, a paint booth, you know, that has air filters and modern compressor and all that other stuff. It turns out recently I found a kid. He just graduated from high school. Uh, one of his projects while in high school was restoring a 100-point uh, Model A all on his own. He, uh, he turned his parents' garage into a paint booth, very high-tech paint booth. Uh, his, his, uh, air gun is, uh, $2,000. You know, the kid does absolutely amazing work. So when I have to actually do a cabinet repaint, um, and he's out, he's moved out of the county so that he can use, uh, a more, a larger variety of materials. Uh, so as a result, he's, he's the one who does my cabinet repaints. In the five years that we've been do, you know, doing restorations full time, uh, I've only had to do two cabinets, and uh, he's done both of them. Now, have you ever had to restore a 37 Rockola World Series? Uh, I have worked on three of them, uh, and in fact, uh, the one my restoration third in line I, at this point is uh, 1937 Rockola, and uh, they're pretty amazing games. They're pretty easy to keep them running. Uh, having to do a full restoration is probably not recommended unless uh, it's in poor, in really poor shape. You mean because of the value people want it to be original? Right. I think it's. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the value. I think also uh, they're uh, pretty reliable as long as they're not, you know, as long as they haven't been worn down. The three that I've worked on have have all required only minor adjustments in order to keep the balls uh, scoring correctly and keeping track of the balls and strikes and stuff like that. Um, another one that I just recently saw that I will probably have to figure out an answer to or at least tell the owner what the problem is, is that it only, it only uh, throws strikes. The little cam that uh, sort of adds some variable direction to the pitcher uh, isn't working. And uh, so we've got to figure out how to how to make that adjustment. But most of them have been that I know of have been in good condition. But I have one customer who appreciates my uh, style of work and wants the whole game gone through. And so I'm looking forward to that. On a cabinet like that that uses like a you know like a maple or a walnut veneer on the outside, have you ever had to re-veneer any of those style of cabinet? I mean, there's other games you know like the '47 Basketball Champ. Uses that that style of cabinet in the in the Evans ten strike uses that style of cabinet. Do you ever have to do any reveneering? Um, yes, I have had to do some, and uh, in in the case that uh, a particularly complicated uh, example was uh, pneumatic basketball, and in its life, at some point, it ended up sitting with one side in the next to a window and was severely bleached and dried out, and the wood was cracking. Um, and yet at the same time, again, trying to avoid having to uh, refinish the entire cabinet because probably three-quarters of it, at least two-thirds of it, was still 
beautiful, had the original patina to it, and, and really nice wood finish. And because of the kind of work that we do, we deliberately tried to uh, only fix the sun-bleached part. And the way we did that is um, uh, sanding it down, do some of the cracked finish, uh, actually replacing some of the veneer, uh, and then uh, through a tedious process of trying to match the color of the original wood of the of the rest of the cabinet, uh, staining down the, uh, with re- repeated coats and then some sanding and repeated coats, getting the uh, color to match um, of the of the wood finish. And while it's not perfect, uh, unless you're told that that's what was done, oftentimes the casual observer won't be able to see the difference. That. I don't recommend that necessarily for everybody. It's it's very time-consuming, very expensive to do, uh, and it does not result in a in a perfect finish. But it kept three quarters of the game uh, very original with the original patina. Now on pinball playfields, when you have to touch them up, are you using uh, you know like a, a water-based uh, acrylic style paint, or are you using enamels, or using lacquers, and, and likewise, when you clear coat them, what are you using for your clear coats? Right. Um, currently, we're using a, a couple of different methods, depending on how big the surface is that we need to touch up, and what the what the quality of the, un, you know, the, the bottom base wood is. The uh, water-based acrylics, really, my wife, I don't know how she does it, but she she manages to color things, um, first putting down a base color and then maybe putting on some washes, which are uh, highly diluted uh, alternate colors to try and bring the, the two color matches very close together. The problem with all of the, using those materials is that you're then going to have to clear coat. If I'm not going to clear coat, then I will use an airbrush uh, for larger areas to make sure that the, the application is smooth and consistent over the larger area. And then clear coating, um, I still urge people to do um, automotive style clear coat. Uh, take it to your local automotive place and when they're clear coating a car, have them uh, clear coat your play field. To clear coat a play field, uh, if, if a customer doesn't want me to take it to an automotive place, what I will do is I'll actually sand it. it you have to really have a strong <laughs> fortitude to take uh, sandpaper to uh, an antique or an old playfield and sand it down with 1000 grit uh, just to roughen up the surface, make sure you get all the wax off and everything else, clear coat it and I'll put some very, very light coats on first, uh, sand it uh, between coats, make sure it's level and then uh, put on a wet coat and uh, then you're done. Is there any other interesting techniques? I mean, we, you know, I kind of hit on the ultrasonic, and you're kind of a, a pro with the ultrasonic cleaner. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the ultrasonic cleaner, the expertise for that comes from, again, from my mother. Um, she used to talk, rant and rave about how she could take an entire pocket watch or a, a small clock and submerse it, and it would get rid of all the dirt and grunge. And I thought, wow, that must be a miracle. I'll have to get me one of those. Um, watch cleaning solutions are very strange stuff. They're usually solvent-based, uh, and what you're supposed to do is clean your clean the watch in the in the solvent-based cleaner, and then they've got a rinse that actually has lubricant in it. And so the rinse rinse lubricate is uh, 
the second um, phase of that, so you immerse it in that material. I found that um, some of the cleaners that are used were a little bit too caustic for me. I, you know, I figure if I have to be around it and the environment needs to be uh, taken care of, that uh, it was just a little bit too uh, hard for me. And I found uh, a nice com- company called Alkanox, which used an alkali-based cleaner that's environmentally safe. You know, I can dump it down the drain and not have to worry about it. Um, also, since I work out of the home and I have a business license, I'm very careful uh, to use only home-based cleaners uh, or something that's environmentally safe because I don't want to uh, lose my lose my business license as a result. Now, what is the what's the skinny about um, ultrasonic cleaners and two and cleaning two dissimilar metals at the same time in the cleaner? Right. It, one of the one of the things that you'll find after you've used it for a while is if you're cleaning a variety of parts, you'll get an electrolysis reaction between the metals. Some of the metals will go into solution and then get actually plated onto the other metal, um, leaving uh, the the uh, the metals clean and will work just fine. But you'll get a very dark stain or a uh, some, you know, the material, the the screw or something will turn black or have a dark stain on it. And um, it, while it is clean and it's going to work just fine, it doesn't look clean. And so for our purposes, we want to avoid that. There are a couple of ways that you can deal with that. One is make sure you're only using similar metals when you clean and then change the solution in between. Uh, another is to is to make sure you keep your solution fairly fresh. Uh, the final, the final uh, way that I clean, it turns out that you have a couple of problems with the really old uh, games. One is you've got a bunch of crud on the metal parts, the old lubricants that have solidified, and, and so there is dirt and uh, oil and all sorts of other stuff. So if you clean it in an alkali-based solution, you get rid of that, but you don't get rid of the stains or the... Uh, the corrosion. And so the second batch is usually Citronox, which is an acid-based cleaner um, based on citrus uh, fruits, and that will take off any stain that you have left, and the part will come out bright and shiny. There are also some some modern high-tech uh, rust removers. So if you've got a part that's rusty, um, you can use some of the new, mo- you know, there's a new patented rust remover um, that you can actually use and you can improve its effectiveness by uh, using your uh, ultrasonic cleaner in order to apply it. Is the new rust remover, is it like a, a water-based thing or is it like a gel? Um, it's more, it's not a gel. It's not like a petroleum gel or uh, what's the... Naval jelly. Naval jelly. It's not that stuff. The automotive parts stores have this and it's uh, you can look for something that's patented, and it's uh, it's actually pretty amazing. It doesn't it doesn't take away any material at all, uh, and basically gets completely rid of the rust. Yeah, I think that stuff's called a vapor rust. Yeah, you can use it without your ultrasonic cleaner. All right, Mike, was there is there anything else that I, I I've I've left out that you or that you'd like to add or anything? Um, I encourage people. To, uh, Part of the, another reason for the Sands Mechanical Museum, the website, is an educational one. 
um, I try and show every once in a while I'll add something in there to show how a mechanism works, how the gate on uh, the magic screen on a bingo or um, how the gates on the pinball machine work. Um, I encourage people to go out there and have fun with their games, not only by playing them, but taking a look under the hood. Uh, it's, I don't think it's something to be afraid of. There's a lot of, there are a lot of resources on the internet that will teach you how to do various things. Most of my cleaning process and everything else is on my website. Um, I'd also refer people to your website, Clay. Yours is probably one of the most amazing, uh, sources on the internet, free, totally lacking in advertisement. Uh, and uh, we'll teach you how to do many, many things. And half the fun to me is getting in there and getting rolling up your sleeves and working on stuff. I encourage people to go out and do that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you were talking about finding a restorer that meets your needs. Well, there's one restorer that everybody has that will always meet your needs, and that's yourself. <laughs> yep, I think that's the best one out there. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So now I noticed you also have done some newer games, like you have a, uh, on your website you have a high-speed machine, you know, 1986 Williams high-speed pinball that you went through. Yeah, that. remember I said how I got into this uh, business when I said I bought three games that, from a distributor that was going out of business? Well, uh, one of them was that high-speed, and uh, I had the foresight at the time to uh, go out and buy a new old-stock play field and a new old-stock um, ramps and everything else, plastics, and so uh, finally the day came when I needed to do a playfield swap, and a friend of mine had an extra high-speed game with a beautiful cabinet, and so I basically picked and choose the best pieces out of everything and put a new playfield in, new plastics, and uh, ended up with a really nice game. Um, I don't know how long I'll keep it. It's not quite quite our style, but for a while at least, it's a it's a beautiful machine. All right, well, cool, Michael. I really appreciate the time, and I appreciate you talking and sharing some of your tips. And, again, this is uh, Michael Sands from the Michael's, uh, Michael Sands Mechanical Museum. And where, where are you located in California? I'm in Sunnyvale, California, halfway between uh, San Jose and San Francisco. Cool. Well, again, thank you again, Michael. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation, Clay. All right. Take, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I would like to thank Michael Sands for joining us tonight on TopCast. Really appreciate hearing from him and how he got involved in electromechanical pinball and arcade game restoration. Really do appreciate his time and hope that you all join us again for another episode of TopCast.